Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody. This is Dr. Lawrence Simon, and the show, as always, Stories We Live By. And uh, we have a very, very special guest today. I want to welcome uh, Dr. Thomas Zass, and I'll introduce him in a second. And I'm going to be helped in this interview by Dr. Lewis Wynn. Lou, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Very good. Now, uh, let me preface this by saying that when I read Dr. Zass's book, The Myth of Mental Illness, uh, I always tell this story. It stuck in my throat like a peanut. On one hand, I realized it was the truth. It was the way of looking at everything I had been taught upside down and going through the mirror, and that if I accepted what he said, his idea, uh, his ideas as the myth of mental illness, uh, I really couldn't be a psychologist in the same way as I had been trained. And so I kind of tried to reject it, but after a while, uh, it overcame me. So uh, uh, Dr. Zass has been my hero for a very long time, and uh, he is a medical doctor. Uh, he has an honorary doctor of science. And Dr. Zass, I don't know what an LHD is, an honorary LHD. A literary doctor. A literary doctor. Literature, doctor of literature. Doctor of literature. He is a professor of psychiatry emeritus at the State University of New York, Upstate Medical University, Syracuse, New York. He is the author of 31 books, among them the classics, The Myth of Mental Illness, 1961, The Manufacturer of Madness, 1970. His most recent works are Coercion as Cure, a Critical History of Psychiatry, and The Medicalization of Everyday Life, Selected Essays. This is both 2007. Uh, Dr. Zass's books have been translated into every major language. Welcome, Dr. Zass. Thank you, Dr. Simon. Thank you very much for that very nice introduction. Well, I think the, the first thing our listeners would want to hear and probably would think that you're saying that the earth is flat is how... Can mental illnesses be a myth? How could that be? Uh, <laughs> it's so simple that it is uh, uh, like the Earth is flat, except it's not flat. Uh, it's more like the Earth is not rotating around the sun, uh, which looks very plausible uh, and did for a long time. It's the other way around. Yes. An illness, and every listener who is uh, listening... Uh, to this program, or will listen to it, uh, will realize in all honesty that if he feels he's ill or she's ill, he'll, they'll go to a doctor, and they will have all kinds of tests, usually before they arrive at the doctor's office, blood tests, perhaps x-rays, and then they will see the doctor. Now, what are these tests for? To see what's wrong with the body. Illness is located in the body. It's a material thing. If you like, it's like a teapot or a table. It's a thing. Cancer. An infection. Now, mental illness is not like that. What is that? It's a term that we use for behavior, usually misbehavior. Well, the best example would be homosexuality or masturbation or smoking. <laughs> so what are these? Behaviors. Everyday behaviors, often and often unusual behaviors. Uh -huh. So that it's a myth in the sense that it's a metaphor. It does not exist. Uh, you know, it's like a, 
unicorn. I mean, you know, we can make pictures, we can draw pictures of a unicorn, but there is no such animal. It's it's a mythological, and so it's Myth- you... yeah, mythology. Of course, is full of this kind of uh, beings. I mean, the most prominent one. I don't want to antagonize any of our listeners, but the most prominent mythological figure that to many people is real, to many people is not real, is God. Yes. Or the devil. Or heaven. Or hell. These are all mythological entities. Now, to people who believe in hell, they, they actually think there is some kind of a temperature that you can take there, which is very hot. Can I interject something for a moment? Hi, Louis. Hi. How are you? Good. Nice to talk to you. Yes, same here. Nice to talk to both of you. Yes. Um, I think we should say at this point that that uh, certainly in the in the United States and probably the Western industrial countries, we tend to, and I haven't opened your book yet, your latest book, The Medicalization uh, of Everyday Life, but we tend to medicalize things that upset us. We talk, for my favorite example, is we talk about a sick economy. Um, uh, and that is, is to say that there's something wrong with it. It's not doing what we want it to do. Exactly. And then we reify the metaphor, and we're off and running. Well, the sick economy is, is a very good example because it shows a metaphoric nature. Uh, another example, of course, which I like to cite is homosexuality, for which people were treated, were locked up in mental hospitals for, were given electric shock for. Mm-hmm. Now it's a civil right. But it's only the difference is only 30 years. People forget that. Yes, this was, yes. This was, I am 88 years old, so 87 years old. Not quite idiot. So I remember this. It was a, I was, you know, I was a middle-aged person when it was still a mental illness. Yes, mm-hmm. but it's and still a sin. Again, Doctor Zas. Yeah, it's still a sin. And I think one of the books that that also affected me and anybody who's read it deeply is the Manufacture of Madness, in which you point out that modern psychiatry, in effect, has taken over the concept of sin and taken over the role of the, the church in the Inquisition. Yes, thank you. Well, that's, it's, that, again, to me, is so self-evident. I mean, uh, it's taken over the, the sins, of which homosexuality is an older example, and suicide is a current example. Uh, the number one reason why people get committed to mental hospital now, hospitals now is suicidality, whatever that is. Now, suicidality... But suicide is, if you are religious, sin. If you are not religious, then it's something that you want to do. It's killing yourself. So what's the problem? If you believe in psychiatry, then it's a mental illness. Now, the other thing which uh, I want to add before the conversation goes further is that one can't really take any of this seriously until we add the second dimension of it, which I feature in the myth of mental illness also, the manufacture of madness, and that is the use of force. Yes. It goes without saying, as it did in religion, that since religion has the truth, it can use force legitimately. This was taken for granted in Christianity. Now, this has become unpopular in Christianity. Now, it's very popular in Islam. Yes. You don't know what to do about it, because they think that's a justification. Well, Christians used to think that's a justification, too. And in psychiatry today... It goes without saying that's a justification. Yes. Psychiatrists say that they are treating mental illnesses, but in fact they are, locking, they are coercing people. Yes. Never in the history of the world or of America 
where so many people coerced in the name of mental illness as today. Children, people in nursing homes, in prisons, they are all getting drugs involuntarily. They are all being poisoned by court order, by doctors. Well, Tom, I think we should point out that that is where you draw the line between psychiatry as a bogus medical profession and legitimate medicine. You point out in several places that uh, the, the difference between psychiatry and general medicine is that in general medicine, one can never, one does never coerce uh, a competent adult with treatment. And yet, that is the defining quality of psychiatry. Thank you. That's exactly right. And one really can't discuss the substantial issues, whatever those might be, until such time that this is abolished, which is not about to happen. This is the most important distinguishing feature of psychiatry, that non-psychiatric doctors only treat people by consent. Psychiatrists treat people by not without consent, which I call not treatment, but psychiatric rape. Psychiatric rape. Psychiatric rape. You know, I, I've often thought that the definition of trying to change somebody's mind or behavior by force is really also the definition of torture. Well, of course. Sure. And, and so that what we have unleashed... That's, that's, that's very good. Of course it's torture. By definition, it's torture. It by definition. Right. Now, I wanted to ask you this, because I think this is a very important point, at least for me. These myths, religious myths, psychiatric myths, and, and I think you agree, I think you've said, that really psychiatry is more a secular religion than it is anything to do with science. Right. Now you do with science. Yes, nothing. Nothing. But these but, myths... Well, that's the third point. It has nothing to do with science, and it has nothing to do with medicine whatsoever. Yes. No, but Tom, the most imp one of the most striking things that you have said that jumped off the page at me, and I think it's in your book, Insanity, but it might be in Pharmacracy. I can't remember. I think it's in Insanity. You make the point that, that unlike all other sciences where people want to understand the nature of the phenomenon they're dealing with, psychiatry does not want to understand mental illness. It wants to misunderstand it. It yes. wants to obfuscate it. Thank I you. think that is one of the most powerful things you say anywhere. Thank you. I, I agree. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's what the psychiatric language is for, as compared to ordinary literary language. After all, writers always talk about people who are called mentally ill without using that language at all. Mm -hmm. well, I wanted to get to another point, um, and that is, all these myths seem to be a comp very compelling for the uh, individuals who accept them. And I, I think that, I mean, I can't even imagine how quickly the myth of mental illness took over the United States. The idea that children can be mentally ill in very large numbers and that a drug or pills can cure unhappiness, broken hearts, and the like. What do you think is so compelling for people that they would have swallowed this hook, line, and sinker when it's so simple to see how illogical and nonsensical it is? That's a very important question. I thank you for bringing it up. The answer is, as with all socially popular myths, it gives people a lever 
it enables them to do something in situations in which they are in desperate straits because they are in conflict. For example, a, a married couple, uh, children are gone, are in college, and one or the other becomes very depressed, very often because, uh, especially if they are retired, let's say they have nothing to do, they have nothing to look forward to, they are useless, they know it, they can't generate any interest in life, and then they begin to talk about killing themselves. Well, for most people, this is an extremely alarming thing and yes. for the larger family. So by calling this a mental illness and a clinical depression and all the other terminology and, and going to a psychiatrist, taking drugs, locking up the person who might do this, all this, especially when it's defined by law, by the Supreme Court, by the American Medical Association, and so on, as an illness, then this becomes an extremely important mechanism for dealing with a problem, very much like prayer was in previous uh, days, or like uh, exorcism or other religious interventions. Mm -hmm. What was exorcism, which is still practiced apparently by some Catholics in some parts of the world? That's complete hocus-pocus and mesmerism, but it, it gives people something to do. Yes. But, but, Tom, it also draws attention away from what the real issues are. That, Thank you. Oh, that's, <laughs> I, think, I think that well, is... I'm the, glad that I'll see you for this year. <laughs> yeah, but, well, that's the, that's the chief attraction of, of the notion of mental illness. It right. is that, for example, you, as you well know, when you go to a psychiatrist, the psychiatrist fills out a form, and one of the first questions he wants to have answered is uh, the history of the presenting illness. He wants to know what the history of presenting illness is. When did the symptoms first occur? But the one thing he does not do, or she does not do, is to ask this question which would illuminate the problem instead of obfuscating it, which is, what was going on in the life of this person when the depression set in, the obsessive-compulsive uh, uh, behaviors began. What was going on in the family? What was going on in this person's life? They don't ask that question because they don't want to know. Well, for uh, that's, uh, I agree completely, and I thank you for bringing this up. But we could spend uh, a week discussing this because it isn't that they don't want to know only. It isn't just that, although that's very important. They can't afford to now financially, because if they really wanted to know, then they would have to do what Freud in part did, although yes. he was tainted by all this mythology very much also. But he wanted to know, and we know how long that takes. Yes. A year? Two years? How long does it take to get to know someone? <laughs> we are not talking about an hour or a half an hour. But I we are talking about tremendous quantities of time. But also, Dr. Zas, I think there's another thing nobody wants to know, and that is the larger societal issues. Um, this has all psychiatry. And by the way, I have to say this before we go on. My beef with psychiatry also includes clinical psychology, clinical social work, and any of the groups that call themselves clinicians buy into the psychiatric nomenclature and earn their livings on it, not telling their patients that, in fact, that they're not sick, that, 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 that this is something going on in their life that needs to be changed, 
corrected, rethought, reacted. Yeah, it's a good point. Good point, Larry. And, 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 and this is used now politically. This is extremely important, and uh, let, me, uh, let me say that I have been talking about this for so long and writing for so long that I assumed this. Of course, anybody, anybody who subscribes to this ideology is uh, are the people I'm talking about. It, it doesn't matter whether the person is an MD or a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a teacher or a parent, for that matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, after all, in child psychiatry now, which didn't exist when I went to medical school, there was no such thing as children's mental illness. This is all a new invention. Uh, but it's an also engine very often behind the drugging of children is a parent who doesn't like the child because it's, he's too active or he's too passive or he's too something. So that, that you know, it not only would have to change the way the family lives, you'd have to change the way society functions. Well, if we haven't mentioned the, one other variable here, the media, yes. television, <laughs> the magazines, time, Newsweek, television, that's all you see is mental illness. Yes. Um, I have another caller. I have another caller. I'm going to put the caller on. Hello, caller? I'm here, yeah. Well, no, I know you are. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to get the caller on. No caller. Oh, they hung up. Um, By the way, if you call 646-716-7756, you can join the conversation. You can ask Dr. Zoss questions. Um, I, you know, or any of, or, or or any of you too. I'm sorry. Or anyone else on the program? Yes, anybody uh, can call in and uh, join us. Somebody did call in, and I'm not sure. I didn't recognize the area code, uh, but we'll see what happens. That's fine. Uh, most of the people who listen to the show, some people listen, but a lot of people listen in the archive immediately after this uh, show is over. It'll go to an archive where it'll be available as long as the Internet is available. And um, uh, the show is really starting to get a, a, a listenership, but it's so interesting, it's really more after the fact, many, many more after the fact than during the show itself. So I was really glad to find that out, that, that it is archived and it's always available. Um, and people... Uh, have this because I think this is such an important conversation. Um, I wonder if there are any uh, medical doctors or psychiatrists and psychologists who'd like to call in and maybe argue with us, uh, tell us that uh, we're wrong. Um, yes, that would be good. It would be good. But you no, never really uh, have that, Dr. Zaz. Nobody really confronts you. Well, what usually happens is that you're called crazy. I know I am for saying these things. You call crazy or you don't know what you're talking about or right. you don't know clinical reality or, or the other thing. And I, this well, is I have no experience with serious mental illness. They like yes, that. You have no experience with serious mental illness. And the other thing is many people interpret this. Professionals will say, Dr. Zoss, by saying there's no such thing as mental illness, denies that there's suffering, that there's depression, that people hallucinate, uh, that people have strange beliefs. Uh, can you talk to that for a second? Well, that's wonderfully ironic because I affirm the reality, the existence of those problems, whereas the psychiatrists are the ones who deny it, who say it doesn't really exist. If we were all healthy, then we would be mentally healthy forever. We would never have any problems. Aha. It's exactly the other way around. Of Tom, course, you know, another distinction between psychiatry and general medicine that I don't think you've talked about, if you have, I've missed it, 
is that uh, if you go to a, uh, a doctor in OBGYN or uh, gastroenterology or endocrinology, that, do- that doctor will examine you, and there may come a point at which he would say, you know, from my point of view, from the point of view of an endocrinologist, there's nothing wrong with you, or from a cardiologist or an oncologist, there's nothing wrong with you. You probably ought to look at, uh, go and talk to an EENT person or something like that. But that never happens in the mental health professions. In other words, we have to use a logical term. We have no null set. No one ever goes to a psychologist and the psychologist says to them, you know, there's really nothing wrong with you. Well, that can, that's, again, a very, very important point. Actually, if you recall, in the 40s or 50s, it was a long time ago, maybe a little more recently, uh, both Carl both and William Menninger uh, proudly stated time and again that everyone is mentally ill, yes. mm-hmm. just not all the time. Yes. <laughs> but sometimes everyone is mentally ill. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's very interesting. So, uh, in, in the... In the um, uh, manufacture of madness, when you, you compare the workings of the Inquisition to modern mental health field, one of the things that struck me, and, and I had to laugh, uh, although it again caused me a burden, was the witch pricker. Yeah. <laughs> the witch pricker was the person who looked for a sign that the person, uh, usually a woman, was possessed, that they had a mark on them, a mole or they didn't bleed if they were stuck with needles in certain places. And I always thought that when I was taught to use the Rorschach inkblot test and all of these so-called projective tests, and the idea was always to find the pathology. The assumption was to find the pathology. No matter what the individual responded to, you found it to be pathological. Mm-hmm. So if they saw a form in the whole blot, they were over, uh, uh, over uh, uh, compulsive. Uh, if they saw little details in the blot, they were fragmented. If they didn't see color, they didn't have emotional response. If they did see color, they were overly emotional. No matter what they said, you got the goods on them. And I think we should point out, Larry, that, that, that in the 40s and 50s, uh, in state hospitals, there were many, many more women than men. Right now, there well, what's left of the, uh, of, of the state hospital system, there are many more men than women. And the, the explanation usually given is that, and this, this gets back to witchcraft in the 16th and 17th centuries, those people were mainly women, not men. Yes. And, that, and that is because women were in those days an economic liability. They didn't earn money. And so, therefore, it, didn't, uh, it was no skin off the nose of, the, of the, the family to put them away, where it would have been if they put a man away. Very important point. Very important. Yeah, but it was also that the woman... And that's why also lower-class people, uh, older people, children, are much more vulnerable because they are, no, they are not productive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the economic sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. And those children who are an economic burden on society... Uh, the statistics of how many children in foster care well, it's or in orphanages are mm-hmm. being drugged and, and shocked and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. virtually 100%. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, about 100%. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they were well, all but, quite uh, back, to the Ro- back to the Rorschach, this is an interesting discussion because uh, the more one thinks about this, and as you both uh, kindly pointed out, these are disturbing ideas 
because it's very difficult to believe that a whole thought system by which the majority of a society lives is entirely bogus. Yes. It's totally bogus. Yes. Well, actually, in the 20th century, two, two huge countries had to face this problem. Nazism is completely bogus. The idea that the Jews are the parasites which are killing Germany. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't the Jews, it was the bombers from England and America that were killing them, and Hitler. Mm-hmm. And the same thing in Russia. Communism. Communism. Yes. But, isn't it, but, but you see, this raises a terrifying idea for people to confront. Well, it's absolutely terrifying. The major thought systems that control the world and seem to have always controlled the world are myths and based on bogus thought. Yes. That they serve power, that they serve economic interests. Interest. And personally, family, family dynamic interests, yeah, that they, are, that they are due to a perennial human phenomenon called conflict. Mm-hmm. Once there are two people in the world, only Robinson Crusoe <laughs> was without, could live without conflict. Once yeah. there are two people, you have conflict. Well, this is what, another point. These people make- can't stomach. This is another point you make in one of your books. I can't, I can't remember which one now, but the, but the remark you make that whenever, whenever a person goes to a mental health professional, that mental health professional unwittingly usually becomes a party to a family conflict. And, they, and, and of course, we don't want to see it that way. We don't want to see ourselves that way. But that is, you, you hit it right on the nose again. Yes, yes. And that's why, actually, again, some of the ways in which psychotherapy, psychiatry is practiced uh, testify to that insight in that uh, uh, a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists try to avoid this by seeing uh, both a, a husband and wife when there is a marital conflict. Yeah, yeah. Which, interestingly, is the very opposite of what is correct legal practice. If, if somebody... If a man or a woman goes to a lawyer and saying, I think I want to divorce my wife, that lawyer is not supposed to represent the other part. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody yes. keeps calling in, and I keep trying to click them on. See, I have what's called a switchboard, and it but doesn't go on. Whoever that is, it's the same number. Try again, and this time I'll try not to knock you off. Um, it's kind of upsetting. I don't know why this is happening because I haven't had the problem with uh, either of the two of you. So, anyway, what do we do about this, Dr. Zass? Is there something to be done? No. I am very pessimistic. Uh, in the se- yes, yes, not, in the, not in the long term, no. Uh, there is nothing to be done so long as it does not bother most more people in power. Right. You see, what was to be done about Nazis? What was to be done about communism? It was uh, essentially external forces that forced them to confront the problem. They were pushed against the wall. Now, in the same way, the same kind of thing happened in a, in a less violent way with a cultural revolution we call the Enlightenment. Uh, but that took hundreds of years for people to reject religious coercion. That's a very recent phenomenon. Yes. And the American, in this respect, the founding of, of the United States is a unique phenomenon 
it was accepted until then that there can be no country where there is not a unanimity of religion, that everybody has to have the same religion. People can't live together mm-hmm, mm-hmm. several religions. This idea of freedom of the religion that we talk about, and we are now discovering that it can't be done in Iran or Iraq. And it's under pressure here, too. There are people in the United States who think that we should be an evangelical Christian country. Of course. Yeah, of course. And, and it, what's terrifying are the number of people who seem to think that this is a reasonable and correct way to go. Um, I, I remember watching the film um, Inherit the Wind. I'm sure mm-hmm. you both mm-hmm. saw the film. Oh, yeah. that was a great movie, yeah. yeah. It was a great yeah. movie. And when it was over, you, I said to myself, gee, that could never happen in the North, the idea that evolution could be thrown out as a set of ideas, that science could be vanquished. And who knew that 30 years later the battle lines would be drawn this way in terms of but trying... I will bring up something because this is also very important to what we are talking about. The opposite point of view. Who would have thought that atheistic books, especially Dawkins, which is especially bad, I think, would become so popular where one gets the impression that he is just as intolerant as the evangelicals? Who? Uh, Richard Dawkins. Aha, aha. On God, uh, God is Dead, or whatever the title of his book is. Uh, the God uh, Delusion. The God, the God Delusion. Delusion. In fact, yeah. I'm looking at the book on my shelf right yeah. now. The, yeah. What's the title? The God, the God, God Delusion. Delusion. Yeah. Well, again, look at the terminology. Delusion. Yeah. Why is, what about the right to believe anything you want to believe? Toler- tolerance for different beliefs. You want to believe that you are Jesus Christ? Hello, caller. Caller? Are you there? I had them. I had them. Ah, caller? Yes. Who is this? It's Phil Sinaiken. Oh, Phil. Um, why don't you join us? Uh, Phil Sinaiken, uh, Dr. Zas, is a practicing psychiatrist and one who is suffering mightily because he, he can't get out of the system that he's in. Um, <laughs> of course, he's still a relatively young man. Well, you and, can't get uh, out of the system without giving it up. It's, that's an economic trap. That's right. Um, Larry and I have had some prolonged conversations. Uh, first of all, let me just say that it's a, a pleasure to meet you on the phone, and I've admired your work for many years. Thank you, Phil. That, that could only harm you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it hasn't made me any money. <laughs> no, no that's, uh, that's hitting the nail on the head. This does, but, you can't but, make any money with it. I'll tell you what was very validating for me, because it's, it's a conclusion I've only reached recently as my idealism has been kind of stomped into the ground and ground into the dirt, is there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. Not really on the large scale, because you know what would need to happen for psychiatry to change would be an enlightenment of the whole culture. Absolutely. You know, politics would change. Absolutely. Entertainment would change. The legal, the legal system would have to change. Yes. I mean, and it's just not going to happen. I Absolutely. mean, it's, it's too interwoven. It's too useful. Psychiatry is too useful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's useful. Take... Here's a question somebody asked me way back in my residency when I was a, a, a rebellious as I am now. When I was arguing about diagnosis, and I was reading you back then, back in the 70s, uh, 
somebody asked a very insightful question. He says, well, if we take away bipolar disorder for people, what are we going to put in its place? <laughs> and that's a legitimate question. And it's just as legitimate if we take away witchcraft, what are we going to put in yes. its place? Yes, I mean, because slavery, today it is... If we take away slavery. It's the answer to, to problems, even though the solutions don't work. That seems to be of minor consideration. Irrelevant. And uh, the don't yeah. work it has to be qualified. They don't work for the people who have the problem. They work for other people. Well, that, that's the point, I think, Dr. Zas. They work if, for other it people. It would work for nobody. It wouldn't exist. Exactly. Of course. It, it, works, it, for it works for the people who are selling the drugs, and it works for the people who are making the shock machines. But, but it also works, works for the people who are earning their living. I like to use the example that we haven't touched on yet to get to the law. The simplest, uh, really a fragment of this gigantic edifice that psychiatry with 2,000 rooms, just one room is insanity defense. Well, you take this uh, woman, I can't think of her name, uh, in Texas. What did, uh, I'm did, sorry, Yates. Uh, yes, thank you. Yes. Mrs. Yes. Yates, who drowns five children deliberately in cold blood. But nobody wants to execute her, and this was in Texas. Where they execute everybody. <laughs> where they execute people who may not even be guilty. And she calls up and told the 911 operator that I just killed my children. Yeah. But nobody wants to enforce the law. So this is a, a cop-out for the jury, for the lawyers, for everybody. Now how would our society is not prepared to look at these problems? Indeed. Simply not prepared to. You know, there was an article in our local newspaper where they were talking about the increased utilization of antipsychotic, the atypical antipsychotics in children in Florida, which is where I live. The Medicaid bill going from five million dollars in 2001 to 25 million dollars, and there was this was after Rebecca Riley had died from an overdose of her medications. And the mother, in her own way, was extremely insightful. I'm not sure she even knew it, but she said, if your child's problem does not respond to medication, you're screwed. Because she said there's nothing else. And that's very insightful. Very. They are desperately... Without, being, without having any insight. <laughs> yeah, she, but she was totally right. Because there's no residential programs, there's no longer these uh, outward bound, there's nothing for children except the doctor's office and these incredibly expensive medications. And it's just, it's, that's what I'm saying. It would, it would take a change in society that's, that's unimaginable right now to reinstitute programs that didn't, uh, profit corporations. No, this is not, uh, this is not, uh... Uh, in, in some ways, uh, 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 psychiatry is a, a byproduct of the, of the scientific revolution. Oh, yes. We have the Enlightenment Project. Else, so how, how can we not have science for this? Yeah. 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 Ignoring uh, something that you, that you have talked about, for example, Tom, in your book on Virginia Woolf, which is that... Ignoring that, the obvious. Yeah, you do, in other words, Shakespeare and his contemporaries had, had better insights into human behavior than we do now. We actually know less now about human behavior than they did, say, in the late 16th century. Well, present company excluded. And of many, course. And many course. other people excluded. <laughs> well, I'm not sure we're demonstrating great understanding in human behavior rather than we're understanding the faults, the foibles, and the fallacies 
of the system that's no, supposed to... No, but we understand the behavior, too, as a part and parcel of human tragedy. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's another Be- point. Being human. Yes. It's, it's human suffering, and it's part of it's the human condition. The human condition. One of the books that also um, doesn't get discussed as much, but also stuck in my craw for a long time. I think the phrase you used, Dr. Zast, that uh, your, your work is the bone that sticks in the throat of psychiatry. Right, and you can't swallow it, it can't spit it out. <laughs> was the myth of psychotherapy. Could you talk a little bit about your idea? Because much, many of the colleagues that uh, uh, Lou and I know will also say mental illness doesn't exist, or the drugs are the wrong treatment for mental illness, but psychotherapy is the right treatment for these disorders or illnesses. Uh, Louis, thank you. I'm sorry? This is, uh, Louis, Louis was asking the question. Or, or is it Larry? No, Larry. Larry. Yeah. Oh, Larry. oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah that's just Larry. Should... Larry, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Well, this goes to the heart, to, to really taking seriously the proposition that there is no illness, there are only these life problems which involve usually more than one person and which are simply life problems which people, if they want to grapple with them, they have to look at them in a very gutsy way. Uh, It's very difficult to talk in the abstract about this. Why do people come to... Uh, I like some of the old psychonic jokes, some of which I heard even when I was a child in the, in the 30s, in the 20s. Uh, why do people go to psychoanalysts? Now, this was a very old joke. I, I heard this when I was a child. There are two reasons. People go because they are married and wish they were not, and are not married and wish they were. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have, to, I have to say something. That remark that... Uh, that uh, I think it was Tom was quoting that somebody said uh, that you have no you have no experience with real mental illness. I have to say, just speaking only for myself, I I spent four years at a state hospital working with the most quote unquote mentally ill people in my state. And let me tell you, understanding and caring and listening will do wonders. Wonders. I even got some people off medications that I had to fight with psychiatrists to do it, but I had uh, the political power to do it from the state capital because I was appointed as the director. But people who say, people who say that, that we have no experience with the truly mentally ill are dead wrong. We've, we've, at least I, again, speaking for myself, have spent a lot of time with seriously disturbed behaviors. And as I said, caring and sharing and, and, listening and listening work wonders. And yes, but those, those things aren't, low medical. Exactly. They're not therapy, except if, if you use the word sick in quotes as a metaphor, yeah. I think that Dr. Zass's argument in the myth of psychotherapy is this was meta- metaphorical therapy. Exactly. And sure. it is therapy in the same sense in which Freud used this analogy, in which the confessional is therapy. Yes. And, and that if not the confessional that, and variations on that, you know, is obviously, ter- ter- is obviously helpful. And yeah. the point about uh, uh, talking to, quote, seriously mentally ill people, one of the very good books on this subject is Jung's autobiography, in which he talks about when he was working at the Burghölzli, the Zurich big uh, public mental hospital, of how he, was, uh, he, he got interested very early, when he was very young, 
uh, suppose like a resident in a, a schizophrenic patient who boiler and everybody said they're schizo- if she's schizophrenic nothing can be done mm-hmm. and he listened to her and it turned out that uh, uh, during a typhoid epidemic in town as for some poor woman with a daughter I, I, I may be garbling the story but anyway she took the daughter to one of the wells which was not supposed to have been used and sure enough the daughter died mm-hmm. and nobody knew anything about this because you know everybody else was dying of cholera or whatever it was that was in the water at that time and uh, she became normal after you know you talking to her, listening to her for a couple of weeks and was discharged. And then what did Bloiler and the others do? They said, well, this wasn't a real case of schizophrenia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. The diagnosis was the wrong. The diagnosis was yeah, wrong. Yeah, right, right. So but by the way, that works the opposite, too. If, correct. if a therapist tries to work with somebody and they don't respond, it's not the therapist who have, was wrong. We misdiagnosed right. them. You need a more severe diagnosis. Well, this is what's deadly about psychiatry as a political phenomenon that in criminology, with all its fault, faults, it is possible to prove, especially if you are rich and, and smart, to prove that you are innocent, as these boys did in North Carolina, in Durham. Yes. Oh, you mean the boys who killed their parents? No, no, the boys who, uh, no, the boys who were accused of raping a girl. Oh, 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 yes, yeah. But they could prove that they are gu- not guilty. You can't, supposing they were diagnosed as schizophrenic. There's no way to prove that they are not schizophrenic. No, 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 not at all. Dr. Sass, can I share my psychiatry joke with you? I'm sorry? I would like to share my psychiatry joke with you. Please. (laughs) You've probably heard it, but you know the answer to the question, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. Yeah. (laughs) The reason I bring that up is because I think you've got to put the other side in the equation here. It's not just from the doctor's side. It's also from what I would call the consumer side. People solicit these diagnoses of mental illness. They serve a purpose in their marriages. They serve a purpose in their self-definition. Beautiful. And it's often one of great relief. Beautiful. Yes, yes. I, I, it's very well put. Yeah. And I hope people will listen to this uh, when, they, when they tune into this. Uh, Nobody listens to me. <laughs> hey, Phil, Phil, no, we're no, listening. No. That, 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 that is so true, and people know it's true when they look into their soul. Yes, and it's the easiest way out. But on the other side, many of the people I work with who are diagnosed as seriously disturbed, if you looked at their life, it was overwhelming. Mm. Yes. yes, there were so many of the people. I, I remember one patient. I hate to use the word patient, but she was my patient. And she had uh, grown up in uh, Korea, in Seoul, Korea, with a family of 13 children, poor. And the father was a mad alcoholic who would come home at night, pick a child, and pull them out of their sleep and punch them in the face so that none of the children had teeth by the time they were eight or nine years old. And there was no one to stop this. Yeah. And this young lady ran away from uh, her home when she was about 14 and went to Seoul. As she said, she couldn't tolerate hearing the screams of her mother and her, chil- and her siblings any longer. And, of course, what does a young girl go do? 
How does she survive? Right. She turned to prostitution right. and, and was beaten. And it, The more she spoke, the more I had this vice feeling around my chest that I was listening to something that, that somebody had to intervene. Well, anyway, she came to the United States when she married a soldier who brought her over and immediately abandoned her in New York. And now she not only was, um, was uh, uh, working as a prostitute, she got involved with drugs, and she contracted AIDS. Oh, and one day she said she was so alone and so terrified, and suddenly the mother of God appeared before her and said, follow me, right. and led her right on to the East River Drive where she was hit by a car. And she was paralyzed on one side. What was fascinating, she said, the year in the hospital, uh, the mental hospital, because when she told the doctors that she saw the mother of God, immediately she was schizophrenic. My response to her, by the way, was, what it took God so long to respond to you? Yeah. You know, um, that was the best year of her life. Nobody raped her. Nobody beat her. She didn't have to have sex with people she didn't want to have sex with. And the more disturbed the patient, the more I used to hear story after story like that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And you wonder, how does a person survive, and how can you not see that seeing of God or that incident as totally adaptive to the totally, needs totally. of that individual? Yeah. Well, yeah. we have forgotten this, which actually the, the, even the early analysts were much, much better at. Uh, that is seeing the, the adaptive nature of uh, quotes what we call mental illness I mean in a, in a way both Freud and Jung emphasized that you know they, they got it mixed up with medicine and treatment and all this yes <laughs> can I bring up working yeah. as, a, as a psychiatrist in a typical community that my population is what Freudians would have called neurotic people not not you know people with horrible biographies like the one you just brought up Larry but just stressed out people and it's not. It's interesting that this week they made a big deal about some study that was done that showed that 50% of Americans feel stressed by their work and their economic situation and whether they can continue to pay for their house. And psychiatry now is becoming a place where the culture can dodge these issues, yes. yeah. can dodge the issue of the horrendous workplaces we have mm-hmm. where people don't know if they're going to get a pink slip the next day the stress of constant economic pressure. And, you know, it's like they just write it off because there's just this, you know, uh, there's this willing group of people, and and I'm just ashamed of psychiatrists at many levels, willing group of people who can see this but don't see it and who actually play into the system and will call something depression that really is clearly just living in America. Yeah, well, Phil, I read... I yes. read recently, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it was something like this, that 50% of all American pension plans have gone belly up in the yes. last seven years. And that means that people who thought they would be able to retire on a pension have to consider very seriously going back to work. The main problem I see with elderly people is anxiety. The trouble is, it's legitimate. Yes. <laughs> it's not pathological. Exactly. Well, the whole, I mean, you are bringing up the fact that Economic pressures and personal economic needs, and perhaps even the cultural, if 
what you could say about the cultural indoctrination that one has to have a big house and a car or several cars. You know, yes, yes. people trying to live above the level that they can comfortably adjust to, in other words, their own economic ambition, which is part totally cultural, almost totally, mm-hmm. uh, is a tremendous engine also behind this, which, of but, course, you, no one wants to look at. What we have to do to achieve it is also become... Have you heard of the study called No Vacation Nation, where oh, they looked the at service, yes. whether Americans take vacations take and the they vacation. don't? They don't. I tell young people, why don't you move to Europe? I have a good plan for you. Move to Europe. <laughs> at least you'll get four to six weeks of paid vacation a year. I seriously uh, want to write a prescription for people. Take a vacation. Yeah. yeah. But let, they let can't afford you, it. They can't afford to. Let me tell you the diagnosis I hate the most, <laughs> and that is post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Bravo. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Guy comes home from combat. Yeah. <laughs> he lost his leg. He's been to hell. He's been back. And now he has a psychiatric diagnosis in addition. I'm sorry? Now he has a psychiatric diagnosis in addition to all the other injuries. Yes. How do you see life after you've killed people and watched people you care about be killed? I mean, what is normal under those circumstances? And that, I mean, I remember after the towers went down on 9-11, and, and the sale of Prozac in New York went through the roof. Right? Let's not be citizens who have to join together and deal with a common problem. Let's all run off to our therapist and take pills. It's just absolutely mind-boggling. But, well, but, but the same thing, this is what, in every nook, <coughs> excuse me, in every nook and cranny of our society, this phenomenon that you just described, or take the example of a 16- or 17-year-old youngster being run over by a car, or even worse, killing himself. There are 1,000 students in the school. 950 doesn't even know who the student is. Mm-hmm. But they are all given grief counseling. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which has been proven by research to make people uh, worse. That, yes, that crisis yes. intervention makes people worse. Yes. But we do yes. it. Well, it makes more patients. Yeah. More patients. The manufacture of madness is no, is no figure of speech. Well, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign off, but it's been great to talk to you, Dr. Siles, and Oh, it's an hour. gone. <laughs> Larry, thank you for um, making this happen. Oh, okay. And thank I'll be in touch much. with you, too, to let you know how things are going. Thank okay, you I have another much. caller. Okay. Okay. Take care. Well, thank, well, thanks, you. thanks to Phil. Very good. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank Bye-bye. you very much. Caller? Thank you. Hello. 516, are you there? Yes, hi, doctor. How are you? Good, how are you? Hi, I'd just like to let you all know that World Talk Live will be on this Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with a special guest, uh, number one golf course architect in the country, Tom Fazio. So thank you very much. Oh, okay, thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. A plug from somebody... Oh, fuck well, off. You know, the, uh, one of the reasons, uh, do I still have you guys? Yeah. Okay. Tom, you still there? Tom? I think we lost him. No, I, I think, Tom? Tom? I wonder if he hung up. No, I lost Tom. Yeah. I wonder if he can join us again.
Phil? No, he's gone. The Phil did hang up, but I think probably Tom did too. I have another. I have another uh, caller. Three, two, one. Are you there? Yes. Who is that? Uh, this is uh, Charles English. Yes. How? How Go are ahead. you? Go ahead. I- I'm fine, thank you. I'm calling from Winter Park, Florida, and my question has to do with working with um, adolescents. Um, I haven't been able to pick up your your program on my internet. Um, but I, I, and I'm calling in to ask you a question, Dr. Zahler. Um, in fact, there was a young man in my office tonight who was 15 years old, and he's been um, diagnosed ADHD. Bullshit. I, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> and I was telling his mother tonight, it seems as if um, his problem is really an attitudinal um, and surely an adjustment thing. He, he has such a bad attitude towards everything. What do you know about his life? What do you know about the context within which he is living his life? Um, uh, for example, for example, was he a wanted child? Does he have siblings? Where in the sibship is he? Uh, are his parents married to each other? Is there a divorce just happened or about to happen? These are issues to which kids respond. That, those behaviors that uh, his mother finds offensive come from somewhere, and they come from the context within which that young man is living his life. Well, absolutely. His father has virtually never had anything to do with him. Uh-huh. Um, that does, that's gr- does great for his self-esteem. And um, his mother makes excuses for him all the time. Uh-huh. She doesn't accept responsibility. And um, he, he always has a way out. Well, and also, there's another issue here with ADHD. Most people who are diagnosed ADHD are boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and boys, if you watch them, want to play football and they want to run around, and you have to say to them, no, you have to be civilized, and I, I accept that, and you're going to spend five hours a day in school, and you're going to sit. And for most boys, or for many boys, this is extremely difficult. Right. And so the teacher, and I feel sorry, especially teachers here in Florida. I also live in Florida. Uh, I feel sorry for anybody who teaches in Florida. Because the classes are large, the salaries are low, and the teacher can't afford to fall behind. She has to pass all the uh, no-child-left-behind tests. And a kid like this shouldn't be understood. He can't be worked with. You've got to shut him down as quickly as possible. And if you call it ADHD and say it's a medical problem and drug him, it'll shut it down. Well, interesting thing, tonight I was um, had a group of younger boys before him, and um, we were talking about the transition from boys to men. And I had a little, I drew a little graph on my grease board and, and diagram um, biological transformation as opposed to psychological transformation. And I attempted to share the same um, ideas with him, and he was very unreceptive. And again, this kid is about, you know, four or five years older than the younger boys. And, and it really made him angry. And he said to me, he said, I don't want to talk about these things aloud. These aren't things that we talk about. These are things that happen, but they aren't things that we have conversation about. Yeah, real men don't talk about this stuff, do right. they? And, of course, here's a boy who has brothers, maybe three or four years older than him, who's probably um, uh, modeling for him how to be a man. 
but they they don't know themselves really how to be a man. Well, if they don't have a father, uh, then then that model has been absolutely absent, and the model that replaces it is something from the media. Oftentimes, yes, yeah, yeah, and it's very. You know what's interesting is that it's very hard to get men into uh, positions of authority in school, etc., with children because we don't trust men to be around children. The minute a man says, I want to work with children, we say, well, what's wrong with you, right? Uh, so, so, they'll, bring them around us. they'll bring the big boys around us, but oftentimes it's really late and it's really difficult to get these through older children, particularly African-American boys. Uh, well, can I ask, what do you do? I'm, I'm a licensed mental health counselor. You're a health counselor? Yes, yeah, so my background is in psychology. I have a doctorate in psychology. Oh, you do. You are. Yes. Uh, how do you react to Dr. Zasses and our thesis that uh, this whole business of diagnosis is nothing but calling people bad names for political and economic reasons? I read this book years ago. Must oh, you did. Early seventies, and I agree wholeheartedly with him. In fact, I've been active with the Citizens Commission here in Florida. And um, I agree wholeheartedly, so I'm a part of the choir. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I was hoping we were going to change, we were going to get somebody new to the choir. <laughs> oh, no, you know, oh, no. I, I, uh, Laura sent me an email today, and, and I responded, but I just couldn't pick you up on the radio. I was really just wanting to listen to you. I didn't necessarily um, have a need to talk. Well, it's nice that you joined us. I don't know what happened to Dr. Zass. As soon as we hang up, I'm going to call him. And I want to thank him. Um, I think that all of us see him as a kind of a hero and an icon. And uh, it's interesting, in another historical time, in another place, maybe his name would have been, you know, the name in psychiatry and psychology rather than the people who ultimately led the well, direction of the field. You know, as, as, a, as a point of encouragement, I often... Uh, look back at, say, Copernicus uh, and Giordano Bruno, who advanced the heliocentric theory of the universe. Now, the, the, the opinion didn't change overnight. In other words, uh, Copernicus didn't say, you know, uh, the Earth really goes around the sun. It's not the other way around. And everybody said, oh, my God, he's right. And everybody, that's not the way it happened at all. No. And so, and so these things do take time. Uh, and, it may take and by the way, I'm much less uh, pessimistic than Phil was. Uh, I really do believe that conversations like this do make a difference. Freud had an interesting statement. He said, uh, reason speaks softly but carries a big stick. <laughs> okay. And, yeah, and I, I think so. I, I do believe that ideas like this that are common sense and simple and really easy for people to understand um, Work their way in if they're yeah. spoken. I think. Yeah. I think the responsibility of all of us is to not give up, but to keep fighting and to keep speaking, uh, and keep pushing in the direction that we think we should be pushing. Uh, I never thought I'd live to see the Soviet Union fall. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah these exactly. ideas—they just seem monolithic. It seemed overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And uh, where is it now? Uh, we're about finished. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Zas. I'm going to call him to thank him. I want to thank uh, the listeners that called in. Lou, as always, I thank you so much. Pleasure. And uh, to my listeners, next week uh, at uh, 4 o'clock, I'm going to go back to my 4 o'clock time, 
I'm going to discuss where did rebellion go? Why isn't there an outcry today like there was in the 1960s? Where, where did all the, the uh, anger go? And I'll discuss that, and I hope everybody will be with me. And uh, thank you, and I'm going to say good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.